So today is our last section in Galatians, 11 through 1 through 18, or excuse me, 11 through 18. Um, but it's not our last sermon in this series. If you were here a couple weeks ago, we were talking about gospel character, and there was no way to talk about all that Paul refers to in living a life of the Spirit as opposed to a life of the flesh, then, and do that in one sermon. So we chopped that one sermon up into three parts, and we only did part one a couple weeks ago. We're going to revisit that uh, after, actually, uh, Mission Sunday, so that's going to be the week after the 19th. Next week, however, especially if you're new here at Christ Community Church, is something that is wonderful. It is reflection service. So we are going to think about what God has taught us, what God has shown you, how God has used the book of Galatians and the preaching of His Word in your life to transform you. And so your homework for this week is to go back and think about all that we've been learning through this book and how have you turned that and how has God used it in your life to live for His glory and the good of others? And we're going to get a chance to share that with everyone at our reflection service next week. Uh, I'd like to ask you all for something that I don't normally ask, so a little bit of a personal prayer request. Um, some of you may know that for the last five years I've been working on my PhD, and this is the week that I fly out to defend my dissertation. So it's the culmination of five years of work, and it, it, it's a friendly committee, but it's a formidable committee nonetheless, and they are going to see if uh, they can bestow upon me that degree, and I'll be uh, defending my work against two theologians, a philosopher and a psychologist, so a real, real fun crowd to spend a few hours with. So. Um, uh, I'm flying out Wednesday, and the defense is Thursday, uh, and so by God's grace and His sustaining mercy, the yoke will be lifted from my back on Thursday, but you just never know. So, so pray to that end. I'd appreciate it. Well, as we think about Galatians, um, we realize that the study of this book has really been a study of contrast, hasn't it? Uh, you, you have this idea of religion versus relationship, of promise versus performance, of slavery versus sonship, of duty versus devotion, of life in the Spirit versus the life in the flesh. Our study of the book of Galatians, in large part, has really been a study in our own walks with God as well. And as Paul is wrapping up these final seven or eight verses, he's really concluding the two major fronts of his argument throughout the book. Now, he's made a lot of arguments, but two major points were coming through, and that was the, the lifestyle that picks its confidence in its own uh, performance and flesh, and we use that word to refer to the whole system that, in a sense, functions in a way against the things of God, right? So, that word flesh refers to doing things on our own apart from God, and, and the whole book has been people living that way as opposed to a lifestyle that's powered and fueled by the power and the glory of the cross. Uh, and and, and, the, and the, uh, the way he really actually argues against the first is really by the second, that the way you really don't live a life that's powered by your own pride and the flesh is to live a life that is empowered by your just amazement at the power and glory of the cross. And so he ends this book by culminating those two arguments. See, in verse 11, he writes, as Kyle read to us, see with what large letters I'm writing. Um, I'm to point something out here. A lot of times in the New Testament, Paul or some of the other writers will use what's called an amuensis, or amu it's a scribe, basically. They would dictate, and somebody would write. So, it's not uncommon to read in some of the New Testament epistles a weird phrase, something like Paul saying, see, I'm writing these words with my own hand. 
Well, what, what he's referring to is this point is so important to him, he wants to conclude it that he kind of grabs the pen from the scribe and starts writing it himself. Now, back then, you know, they didn't have word processors, so there's no command B for bold, right? Command I for italics. So the, what they had to do was just they would write in large letters. This is really important. Look how big these letters are. It wasn't because he couldn't see. is He was making an emph- emphatic statement that what follows needs to be paid attention to. So in your mind's eye, as you look at these final verses, imagine them being in bold type or in italics or whatever it is, because Paul wants you to get the message he's communicating here. Now, if you were with us when we started our study in Galatians, which was, I think, in September, we talked about uh, this group of individuals. We call them the Judaizers, and I didn't use that word too often because it just sounds so odd, but really what it was were Jewish Christians who were trying to make non-Christians or non-Jews Jewish, so they tried to Judaize them. So that's what they were called, the Judaizers. They were trying to convert these Gentile Christians that were not Jewish into a Judaistic system. Now, at that time in the New Testament, there was a wave of nationalism going through ethnic Israel, through the nation of Israel. And the idea was that any Jew that had sustained contact with the Gentile world was going to evoke God's displeasure. And now at the beginning, these Jewish Christians who were Jews who converted to Christianity, they weren't too worried about this because by and large, the gospel was a Jewish religion. It was kind of like Judaism 2.0. So they were okay that that the church was spreading wildly in Jerusalem and, and to some of the synagogues in the area. But then, shock of all shocks, God wasn't satisfied with just saving Jews. God's whole plan was going to save the world. And the gospel started to punch through the boundaries of ethnic Israel and and non-Jews and outright pagans and and Jew haters and and God haters were being converted and the church was growing. And now in what used to be a Jewish kind of religious system was no longer Jewish. It was by far transcending Judaism and all nations were becoming believers in Christ. So that just brought a problem now. If, if, if this gospel message is converting everybody, it didn't matter what religion or ethnicity you were, and there's this rising tide of, in Judaism that, that sees fellowship with Gentiles as a problem and God is going to give His disapproval, we have a problem. And so their solution to the problem was to go through these churches and say, look, you can believe in Jesus, you can accept the claims that Paul is making, that's all fine and swell, all you need to do as well is kind of convert to Judaism, and so the way you do that is you adopt our dietary eating processes and, and circumcision, and you'll be okay. You see, because the, the Jewish nationalists that weren't Christians by any means started to scrutinize these other Jews, these Christian Jews, and that scrutiny often turned to violent persecution. And so, to avoid that persecution, they started to spread what they thought was just a benign little addition to the gospel message. But what has been exposed, as Paul says, this little addition to the gospel, as a matter of fact, undercuts the entire gospel. If you're saying they need Jesus as well as the marks of Judaism, then they need way more than Jesus. You're saying Jesus wasn't sufficient enough. And so often, as false teaching does, it comes in in very subtle, minor ways that we think isn't that important, but then the implications are disastrous for the gospel message. These Judaizers, these opponents of Paul, we see in verse 12, uh, Paul exposes them for what they are. They weren't concerned for the glory of God and the good of these Galatian Christians. 
They just wanted to look good. Look at verse 12. There's this uh, somewhat bit of a strange phrasing. They want to make a good showing in the flesh. What Paul's saying is they just want to look good in front of these Jewish nationalists. And because their desire was not rooted in God's glory or the good of these new converts to Christ, but a desire to appease these nationalists, a desire to avoid discomfort or inconvenience, a desire to operate out of the flesh, everything that flowed from them was tainted. And Paul's driving point as he ends the book of Galatians really can sum up what Galatians is, is that because this, the new reality that has dawned because of the work of Christ, the only thing that matters now is that new creation. All the arguments about circumcision and dietary laws and all these things were irrelevant and missing the point. They weren't not significant. They had some importance, but they were missing the main important thing, and that the new creation in Christ is what matters. But before making that final point in verse 15, Paul points out the four flaws when people operate out of a, a performance mentality or a pride in our own accomplishment, a pride in the flesh. And that's how this few verses are broken down. Let's take a look at them one at a time. Uh, the first couple of verses, verses 12 and 13, we call it the pride and performance of the flesh. And the first thing we notice right there is in the very beginning of first, verse 12 is that the method of the flesh, of operating of our own ways and our own strength, is forceful. You see that in verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, they want to look good, who would force you to be circumcised. That word force is the same word used in the second chapter of this same very book when Paul was talking about the gospel transcending all ethnic lines and, and this, this initial council meeting that was held in Jerusalem. And Paul had brought Titus, a Gentile, born and bred, complete Gentile, to the council meeting where there were the pillars of the church. Remember he said that John was there, Peter was there, James was there, the Lord's brother. And yet they did not force or compel Titus, a Gentile, to be circumcised. The same word is used of Peter later in chapter 2 when Peter was fraternizing with Gentiles freely, eating with them, having fellowship with them, playing with their kids until these Jewish nationalists showed up. And then he changed his tune and said, oh, oh, wait, now you need to be circumcised. And Paul called him on the carpet. The same word, to force, to compel, most significantly, Paul used of his own life in Acts 26, 11, before he had come to Christ he would force and compel these Christian converts to denounce their faith in Christ and God. See, conformity to religious standards in these kind of forceful ways are really uncommon in our culture today, unless you went to Catholic school like I did. But we have other ways of compelling people, don't we? We have other ways to exert a peer pressure, to conform people to social expectations, and a lot of times these may be somewhat relevant to the gospel, but they're not central to the gospel, and sometimes that's why they're hard to discern, because they sound good in theory, but in application they can go sideways. So in evangelicalism, we might have some of these kinds of things we try to compel on others to indicate whether or not you are seriously a mature Christian. So, for example, we have this idea that you must have you just must have your daily quiet time. 
That's just got to be a must-do. If you don't have that, somehow the Spirit of God's not going to be in your life, and you've doomed your day to problems, unless you have your quiet time, right? Or we can have this idea that, you know, you can study your Bible, that's fine, but, but it's not really real until you have devotional reading of your Bible. See, right? It's not about study, it's about the heart, we'll say, right? Or other ideas like uh, if you're in a charismatic church, you know, you raise your hands to show how holy you are, because that's what holy people do. But if you're in a liturgical church, you put your hands down, because that shows you that you're pious, right? So we have all these methods and systems of compelling people to a certain performance to fit in. And I just talked about missions, how important missions is, and, and it's true, but sometimes we can even use something as good as that to say that if you're not passionate about missions like I am, then you're probably not a real Christian. Now, maybe you don't hear it that obviously, but those kinds of threads weave themselves through the church, and because they have a kernel of truth to all of those, right? Reading your Bible daily is, fun, is so important, but it's not because God's going to love you more. It's because you're going to learn to love God more. That's why it's important right? Studying and reading devotionally are so important. Being passionate about missions, all those are important, which is why it has so much influence. But then we make those metrics and standards they weren't intended to be, and we subtly supplant the sufficiency of Christ's work for how much time I put in my daily quiet time. And it conforms the way we behave. Now, similar to these uh, false teachers, the desire to look good in the eyes of others or to simply fit in can affect the way we relate to people, doesn't it? It can shape our behavior. It can shape our performance for good or for bad. Now, if, if you don't believe that's true, just watch any new parent, any new young parent with a child that is misbehaving or crying in public. Right? And you can see how the, the desire, the fear of what others think can exert a strong influence on how we behave. So the method of forcing people, of compelling people was wrong, but so was the motive. Look at verse 12 again. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order, here it is, only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Their motive was from fear. Remember, these, these Judaizers didn't preach the sufficiency of the cross because they feared the real conservative Jews and didn't want to suffer their disapproval or persecution. And so they compromised the essentials of the gospel because of the fear of man. And the Bible talks about the fear of man all through its pages. You get Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord will be safe. Now, we need to understand this phrase, fear of man, because it is all over the Scriptures, and we need to understand what it's getting at, because it seems we, we don't talk that way anymore, do we? The fear of man, at least not outside of the Christian circles. But the fear of man encompasses all aspects we often talk, think about fear as a physical fear, fear of what they can do to me physically, and that might be the case in some extreme situations, certainly in persecuted countries. But here in our culture, it's rare to fear man that we're going to be physically harmed because of our faith in Christ. So the fear of man doesn't show itself in physical terms as much as it does psychological or social terms. What will others think of me? 
right? What will others think of me? Do I match up to their expectations? I'll be embarrassed if they find out. Am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Am I competent enough? Am I beautiful enough? On and on and on. All of those statements reveal a fear of man. Let me give you a working definition. Those are always helpful. I'll put it up on the screen behind me. The fear of man is whenever other people's thoughts about you are more important to you than God's thoughts about you. The fear of man is when other people's thoughts about you, good or bad, are more important to your sense of self than God's thoughts about you. When that happens, you are being gripped by the fear of man. My friends, there is only one set of eyes that you need to worry about. It's not your peer group. It's not your employer, it's not your employees, it's not even fellow church attenders, it's not the people in your social club or meetup group or your kids' sports league. Their eyes do not matter. What they see is only part of the reality of the situation. Only God's eyes matter because only God's eyes see everything, right? God's eyes sees it all. And depending upon your situation, that can bring and should bring a certain level of comfort and peace. So, so even if it is your kid that's having an apocalyptic meltdown right in the checkout line at Ralph's, you don't get gripped by what you think other people are thinking. Their eyes don't matter. In that moment, your parenting is not defined by that moment. Even though they might think it is, you know, but more importantly, God knows it isn't. God sees everything. Other people's eyes only see that moment. But if you're living before their eyes, what's going to happen? Johnny, knock it off. Stop your crying. Right? Does that ever work when a child's crying? It never works. But what you're doing, you're attempting to control them because you don't want people to think you can't control your child. And dads, we say this all the time. It never works, though. You want something to cry about? Right? Right? Has that ever worked? That has never worked. But we say that. Or we're trying desperately to control them because we fear what other people are going to think, because we think we matter. What matters is their eyes, but it's not. It's only what God's eyes matter. Or, or we try and kowtow to them in their sinful outbursts, or maybe they're just exhausted outbursts, and we'll buy them, give them the toy or candy that is always at perfect eye level for them. Whatever it is that they think they want, we will give that to them just to soothe them, all the while fueling a selfishness in their heart and they're smart enough to realize, oh, I get it. If other people are around and I have a, a meltdown, I get what I want. I see how this works. Because we're afraid of what other people think. Rather than realize that the only eyes that matter are God's. It doesn't matter what people think or see. So in that moment, you can speak to them calmly. You don't have to try and control them. You don't have to try and kowtow to them. You speak to them calmly and you remind them of God's commands to them. You call them to repentance if that's necessary, or you just try and soothe them because they're just exhausted. But you are not fearing what other people think you're parenting in that moment for the glory of God before His eyes, not for the convenience of others and their thinking and their convenience. Now, so knowing that God sees everything should bring us that peace and comfort. That's a real practical example of how that happens to us all the time whether a young parent with uh, young children or any situation. But the fact that God sees everything 
should also strike us with a bit of sober humility too. Say you've had a disagreement with a brother and sister in Christ. You've said some things. You've, you've acted immaturely, irresponsibly. You've said harsh words. You were short with them. But then you show up at your midweek Bible study or Sunday morning, and you're singing, raising your hands, and everything seems okay. In that moment, you are pretending in front of the only eyes that matter, God's because He sees everything. And maybe the 10 or 15 people around you are impressed because you're singing pretty with some gusto, and you must be holy because your hands are high or your eyes are closed, but none of those eyes matter. God sees everything. And though you might be acting like Christ and bringing God glory, He knows that you really aren't trying to be like Christ because you fractured a relationship and you're allowing it to remain in that fractured state. You see, so the fear of man exerts its influence all over our lives, so the Bible is constantly, constantly, constantly talking about this dynamic, and so many illustrations of it. The fear of man physically, like uh, Numbers 13, when, when the uh, Jewish spies go into the promised land and come back with a report that scares all the nation, and they feel like, well, we can't go into the land because they fear the giants in the land. The fear of man is also social acceptance and psychological pressure, like 1 Samuel 15, when all the people are looking to the new king. Is he, what's he going to do? How is he going to lead us? He needs to act. He needs to do something. And then he violates one of the law, priestly laws and tries to use it as an excuse to Samuel, and God takes the kingdom from him as a result, the fear of man. And because these Judaizers rooted everything they were doing, not out of God's glory and what was good for this church, but because of the fear of man, they did not have the power of the Spirit to even do the things they commended others to do, and as a result, were hypocritical. Look at verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. Look at that. Their, their, their consistency is flawed. The very people that are trying to put these standards on these new converts, Paul says they themselves are not even keeping the law. Friends, hypocrisy is the natural result when you have religion that is not animated by the Spirit of God, working for God's glory and the good of His people. Hypocrisy is the natural result because it is a, a religious work that sets up standards where they're not intended to be standards. It sets up uh, criteria where none are actually needed, all because it wants to look good in the eyes of others. Write down Matthew 15 or Mark 7. Jesus, Jesus really tightens the screws on the Pharisees and the religious leaders for that very thing, putting standards where they're not necessary, creating uh, criteria that are not needed. Uh, this past... Um, Friday and Saturday, Friday night and Saturday, yesterday, we had a wonderful time at our membership class. We had a packed room in 109, about 35 people, and we were talking about how church membership has fallen on hard times in the last couple of decades, because I think in part that church membership was the, the, the Spirit of God and the beautiful accountability and, and encouragement of one another and the structures of church membership were completely bereft of the Spirit of God. It became all about kind of a, a social do-good club and whether or not you showed up and contributed financially. And so membership was used almost as a cudgel for what was supposed to be a Spirit-empowered structure to help individual Christians corporately grow in holiness. And so church membership became a, 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 a suffocating religious process 
And when we talked beautifully, I think we had a great time for about four or five hours talking about the beauty of what membership means to the individual Christian. If it's animated by the Spirit of God. If it's not, it becomes hypocrisy. Verse 13, so the consistency uh, was flawed, it was hypocritical, and the goal wasn't for the good and glory of God and His people, but was to flaunt. Look at the last half of verse 13. So for the first half says, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, and get this, but they desire to have you circumcised. Why? That they may boast in your flesh. So from center to circumference, whenever we are operating out of our own desires, our own flesh, and not for the glory of God and the good of His people, and animated by His Spirit, it's just tarnished. Verse 12 says, it was pride that was their desire to make a good show, to look good, and its goals itself were rooted in pride as well, to boast. So they did what they did to look good, and they did what they did so they could brag about it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we, we've been quoting him the last couple of weeks because uh, his writings are fascinating, he says this, the figure of the crucified invalidates all thought which takes success for its standard. Let's leave that up there for a second. That's, that's just a radical thing to say in a culture like ours that is just obsessed and enamored, dangerously so, with success. And then how do you even define that? Bonhoeffer says, look, the figured of the crucified. What he means is the picture of the cross with a bloodied Savior upon it totally invalidates a culture that takes success as its standard because at the height of his sorrow and torment was the accomplishment of God's redemptive plan. And so if success is your standard that you're using, defined by the world, you're never going to understand how things work in God's economy. So Paul now transitions, talking about this pride and performance of the flesh. How, how does one crush that? He's going to provide the antidote for that, as well as the antidote for being driven by the fear of man, as well as the antidote to powerless Christian living. And it's the same thing he's been saying throughout the whole book. It's the cross of Christ. Galatians 2.20 is where he beautifully said that, being crucified with Christ. Remember that? So important. We spent an entire Sunday just thinking about that one verse. Verse 14 to 16, Paul transitions to the power and the glory of the cross. Chambers, Oswald Chambers says this in the uh, late 19th century, all heaven is interested in the cross of Christ, all hell is terribly afraid of it, while men are the only beings who more or less ignore its meaning. Wow. That's, that, that, that is so true. All heaven, I think it's in Peter's epistle, it says the angels are longing to look into the mystery of the cross, and the word he uses pictures, in my mind, little kids at a candy store on their tippy toes, desperately trying to see the treats on the other side of the counter. It says the angels want to see the mystery of salvation. All heaven is terrified of the cross, but it's just us human beings who more or less can take it or leave it. That may, statement may be true of many people, but it cannot be true of God's redeemed. It cannot be true of you or I if we call ourselves Christians because it, it is the centerpiece of God's plan. 
And I know it's hard after 16 centuries of seeing the symbol of a cross as a beautiful, ornate, lit up, polished, varnished religious symbol to remember that it was a symbol of grotesque torture and death. I mean, I mean, that itself is a testimony of what the gospel does, doesn't it? We, we converted the, the universal symbol for death into the universal symbol of life. That is the testimony of what Jesus does in all of our lives. Ancient Roman society, it was actually unmentionable in, in polite Roman society. According to Cicero, a poet and historian, he would say that people would use some archaic expression, almost like a euphemism, to not have to say the word cross in polite company. And so they would say, uh, abor- it's, it's in Latin here, abori influencia suspendito, hang him on the unlucky tree is what they would say. But this is exactly what Paul said he boasted in. Why? Why did Paul boast in the cross? Because if Paul should boast in the cross, then maybe we should too. Why did Paul boast in the cross? Here's why. Because it was at the cross that man's problem of sin, a problem we all face, was finally dealt with. It was at the cross that man's need for redemption was purchased. It was at the cross that man's desire for God was met. It was at the cross that man's hope for reconciliation was obtained. It was at the cross that man's salvation was secured. And it was at the cross that the justice of God and the love of God met in the person of Jesus Christ. The cross, you cannot make this stuff up. The cross is the the epitome of the plan, and and some writers say at the cross almost all the attributes of God are displayed, His justice and wrath and hatred for sin, His compassion, His forgiveness and love of humanity, all displayed on this singular object and individual who hung on it. Isaac Watts said it best. Let's look at his, the words from his song, When I Survey, briefly. He says, When I survey the wondrous cross where the young prince of glory died. Christ was 33 when he hung on the cross. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. My richest gain at all the money that I could possibly get doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're Zuckerberg or Buffett or Gates. It does not matter. It's a loss. And I pour contempt on all my pride, all my thinking that those things are the things that make me important. They're not. Forbid it, Lord. Stop it, Lord. Don't let this be true of me that I should boast except in the death of Christ, my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. Aren't we always charmed by vain things? This is an annual tradition in the Roadiever house to prove this point to my children. Every year I ask them this, kids, what was the one thing you absolutely just had to have three Christmases ago? I don't know, it was three Christmases ago. Yeah, but three Christmases ago, your world, you just had to have this or you would die. Everyone had it and if you're going to be accepted, you need to have it. So what was that thing that your very social and physical life depended on? I don't know. What about this year? Oh, this, this, that, and the other thing. The point we try to illustrate is the very thing that was so important that charmed them most is clearly seen to be a vain thing because they don't even remember. And it's not just kids, right? Let's be honest. We do it too. 
If I just had that position, if I got that promotion, if I got that job, if we could buy a house in that neighborhood with that school system, if I could have just this relationship, if I could fit into this, poli- this peer group, vain things that charm you. Watts says, Lord, forbid it that I'd be charmed by these vain things. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love mingled, flow mingled down. What flowed from his head's hands and feet? Blood. But Watts says, it was sorrow and love that mingled down, fell mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? I love this next uh, stanza. His dying crimson. What's, that's a fancy way to say what? Blood. His dying crimson. How much of the blood was there? So much, it was like a robe. His, di- his blood like a robe spreads over his body on the tree. Then I'm dead to all the globe. All the globe is dead to me. Watts is saying, when I see what he has done for me, man, that's it. I don't need the world. It's dead to me and I to the world. If that's the kind of love. Next slide. Where the whole realm of nature mine, in light of what he just sung, where the whole world realm of nature mine, you gave this to me, that would be a present far too small. You can have it. I see what matters most. Love so amazing, so divine. This is the thing that demands my soul, my life, and my all. Watts is saying, when I see, when I survey the cross, that puts all of life in perspective. And you could give me the whole realm of nature, and it wouldn't compare to what I'm going to get from Christ because I see what he's done. That's the thing that demands everything of me. Verse 14, it has the power to free man from the bondage of sin and this world. It wouldn't do a disservice to this verse here in verse 14 to say your ability to resist the trap of the fear of man, your ability to live a life in the spirit and not in the flesh, is in direct proportion to your crucifixion with Christ. Let me say that more concisely. Your effectiveness for Christ is in direct proportion to your crucifixion with Christ. Your effectiveness for Christ as a husband, father, student, son, daughter, brother, sister, employer, employee, political advocate, business person, lawyer, nurse, doctor, your effectiveness for Christ in those areas is in direct proportion to your crucifixion with Christ. This word, this world in verse 14, the world of sin, death, and the law, they're the dominant forces that Paul says, all these powers, they are dead to me because what Christ has done, the new creation in the cross. And then verses 15 and 16, it says, it has the power to do what the flesh cannot. At the end of the day, my friends, there is only one thing that matters, Paul says in, in uh, verse 16, and that is the new creation in Christ. He says, circumcision counts for nothing, uncircumcision doesn't count for anything, but it's the new creation in Christ because of what Christ did on the cross. And that's why Paul said, I'm not going to boast in anything except that. Now, as we end Galatians, we have to ask ourselves, we need to end this service as well, we have to ask ourselves, how is the Galatian heresy, how is what we've learned here applicable to our lives? At, at, at worst, there are teachings and ideas that go through our culture that diminish the work of Christ and His sufficiency and replace it with human effort and merit. At best, there are ideas and beliefs and values that distract us from the thing that matters most by things that matter least. That's what Paul says in 6.15. Lori and I were talking about how this plays out in our lives. 
And I'm just trying to give, I'm going to give you an illustration off the cuff that, that may be a little bit sloppy, but I'm trying to, myself as a pastor, how does this apply to my life? What are the Galatian heresies going on right now? How am I being distracted from what matters most by what matters least? How am I relying on effort and performance and not God's provision? So a few days ago, a few, this last week, our oldest, who's only 14 and a half, but we're thinking about college, so we start, we've been thinking a lot about college, but it's becoming more of a reality. We spent an hour looking on school websites and tuition costs and funding and how are we going to pay for school? This is insane. And immediately my mind starts going to thinking about, okay, maybe I can adjunct teach at some universities, get some money that way. Maybe Lori can get a full-time job. Maybe she can get a full-time job at one of the schools to get a tuition discount. And immediately, or not immediately, but that night I was lying in bed thinking, how much? I immediately go to being a functional atheist, right? <laughs> All of a sudden, I'm confronted with a challenge, and I go to, what's my performance? How am I going to work this out? How am I going to make this happen? How am I going to earn the money I need to pay for the tuition? Rather than saying, Lord, what is your provision? How do I see your provision in this moment? It's not about me earning it or working for it. It's about me pressing into my dependency on you. Now, you can say, you can't get that from Galatians because Galatians is talking about salvation and you're talking about school tuition. That's apples and oranges. Yes and no. If we argue from the greater to the lesser, which is what Paul and Jesus do, Romans 8.32, he says, if God, will not, if God will give his son, how will he not with his son spare all things from you? In other words, if God's willing to give you his son, isn't he going to give you everything you need? Now, if you know your Bible, you can still say, yeah, but I know Romans 8. It's still talking about salvation. So where, how are you going to get there? But Jesus says in, in Matthew 6, in Sermon on the Mount, he says, look, to the people who are saying, I need food, I, I need shelter, I need tuition for my kids, I need to provide, how's this going to work? And Jesus says, guys, we call him Heavenly Father, and your Father knows what you need, doesn't he? He knows what you need, and you'll have that. But you're so easily distracted by the things of this world, the most important thing is you need to remember, you seek your Father, you seek his kingdom, you seek the kingdom first and everything else will come to you. Whether that's in terms of salvation, the very of your soul, or even things like getting your kid through college. How easily the Galatian tendency to depend on my performance and my work supplants that God's provision prevails, right? Now let's, now let's, now let's analyze this even better. I jump to my kid needs to go to college because there's a fear that he needs a good education to provide for himself economically and his family. <gasps> that makes sense in our culture, doesn't it? But that's not a value that I see coming from Scripture. That's a fear that the world is teaching me. And so if my kid's going to survive and do well, he better have a good education, which means he needs a good school, which means I need to come up with all this money. Do you see how the values of our world have gripped me and are shaping the way I am behaving and, and, and believe, believing and living? The reality is, the question, that's the wrong question to ask. The right question to ask is, how is God, God so made our children so that they can steward their lives in a way that maximally brings glory to God and the good of his people? That might mean a college education, but it also might not mean a college education, right? So the question is not one of economics, it's one of stewardship. And Rick, you're approaching this whole thing wrong. You're letting the values of this world conform you rather than the values of the new creation and being kingdom-minded. 
And it's not faith working itself through love. It's fear working itself through panic. I am just like the Galatians. We are all just like the Galatians. We just need to look around and say, how am I being conformed by the values and principles of this world that push me to the flesh and away from the Spirit? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the relevance of your word in all aspects of our lives. From the most significant, like the state of our eternal soul, to the very practical, like my kid who cries at Ralph's or providing tuition for my children's education. Your word is practical and applicable in all these ways. You have a thought about it and you want us to be continually formed by the fact that what matters most is the new creation in Christ, to be a people that are kingdom-minded, remembering your promises and not trusting merely in our own performance. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.